Good morning. Welcome to Battleground this morning. We started worshiping and I couldn't remember whether I had silenced my iPad today. I remember to do my phone, you know, all these things are connected and if one thing rings, everything rings. And, and uh, I hope you got Psalms open, Psalms 45, that's where we are this morning. If you got your sermon notes with you, I hope you do. We're going to flip all over this morning like it's normal. The King of Kings will be exalted forever, and He is the source of gladness for the people of God. So as we get Psalms 45, go ahead and stand to your feet. I want to read the introduction this morning. This is important. We're going to talk about this a little bit. You're going to begin to see, we've already begun to see these sons of Korah come up. So it says, to the choir master, according to the lilies, a mascal of the sons of Korah, a love song. So this is a royal song this morning. So I told Mike it had just hit me afresh this morning as we read. Do you realize what we're doing? There is a piece of sheet music, so to speak, in the inspired word of God, in song. And we are simply expositing a piece of music today. It's what we're doing in God's word. It's just, if you ever thought about that, it just hit me all over again this morning. Listen to this song. Beginning in verse 1. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. Majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies and the peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved the righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. With the oil of gladness beyond your companions, your robes are fragrant with myrrh and the aloes and cassia. From the ivory palaces, string instruments makes you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. And at your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughters, and consider and incline your ears. Forget your people and forget your father's house. And the king will desire your beauty, since he is your Lord. Bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the riches of the people. How glorious is the prince in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king. With her virgin companions following behind her, with joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In the place of the father shall be your sons, And you will make them princes in all the earth. And I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This is God's word, Lord. Lord, when I read this, my mind just goes all over the place in your word. And Lord, we don't have kings today. And we don't understand Jewish culture and there's barriers Lord to be able to see the riches of who and what you're talking about today so God would you help us 
to grasp the beauty and the depth, the power and the intimacy, the future grace that's in this text. Lord, help us give us understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we start with the introduction, who are the sons of Korah anyway? If you want to look it up, you can look it up. Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles speaks about them. In chapter 20, in verse 19, it describes the Kohathites and the Korites. It says, And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. So these are people whose job it is to not only lead God's people in worship, but they would also compose music. In other words, it's not the Psalms are not simply composed by David. There are many authors to the psalm, and the sons of Korah are among them. And this is a royal song, a literal song, a poem that was put to music, composed for the king as he was being wedded to his wife, who would be the queen. This is the context, and so we have a problem, don't we? So also, guys, if you're married in the room, and I ask you a question, was you the center of attention at your wedding? Uh, no. So you see, it's a problem. It's a cultural barrier for us to understand this text. You're like, I just showed up, you know? Go get the tux, shake your head like this. It's not the context of this. So it's, it's pull that out. So how can you understand it? Uh, whatever generation you're from, there's some British. You have to go to England. So here recently, it's 2011. Prince William and Kate Middleton. Does anybody see that on, on the line or that? See. How about Princess Diane and anybody remember that? All some older people. And Charles, was Charles, was that his name? See, I'm still trying to focus on her. You gotta grab that. If you can remember either one of those weddings, the splendor of the palace. The king dressed in his royal apparel. The 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 lady prepared and brought. That's what we have to get in our mind. This would bring both awe and gladness to the people. And in a very weird way, if you watch that, you might even find yourself pulled into that, even brought into joy and gladness, just the regal nature. That's what was going on here. There is a key this morning. So when I use the word hermeneutics. I'm simply speaking about what is needed to interpret God's Word correctly. And so there is a hermeneutical key this morning that, that we are given to help us unlock and apply Psalms today, and it's in the Hebrews. So I want you to turn there, and then I want you to mark it, and just keep in mind this royal wedding. This is a key passage to understanding it. Hebrews 1, verses 8 and 9. We're going to come back in just a minute and talk about the context of this a little bit more. But verse 8 is very clear as it starts. Quoting Psalms 45, verse 6 and 7. It begins in Hebrews 1 and verse 8. It says, but of the Son, capital S, who are they speaking about? Jesus. But of the Son, He says... 
Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved the righteousness and hated the wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has appointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So do you see what I mean? This text is your key to being able to then go back to Psalms 45 and rightly and fully understand it and apply it. C.S. Lewis said this, the birth of Christ is the arrival of the great warrior and the great king. The poets are writing this song, though, to address a king. So in other words, there's two critical points of this. You've got to understand the context that this psalm was written in, the story that we understand, we have it. You also got to understand the New Testament key to being able to fully understand it and apply it. Both of them are critical. But in the, key, in the poet's mind, he's addressing the king. The king's got a character. He is both the lover. We see that in this, in this psalm. The warrior. We see that he's the victor. He's the protector. And listen, this is important. A very important piece of understanding your Bible. The king was God's representative on earth. He was his vassal. And to understand that is to be able to understand this text. To not understand it is to actually be confused by it. I love what Spurgeon said. Michael, you'll appreciate this. He said, heartless hymns are an insult to heaven. So the the sons of Korah didn't simply have intellectual knowledge about the king. They had a love and a passion for their king. And of both, they brought it to bear in this tribute to the king on his wedding day. But this poem is not bride-centered. It's not. That's why I tried to put a royal wedding in your mind. It's not. It's groom-centered. It's king-centered. There's eight lines for the groom and three lines for the bride. The bridegroom is the exalted king and the point at the end is he will produce offspring that will make the nations glad i hope you see the storyline because that is the storyline of the bible so christians must first look into the context of israel the davidic promise here in this storyline to understand this glorious reality that the birth of christ entered into time and space a great warrior king And he has been exalted. And he has brought offsprings to the people of God. And he will come again. And our job is to make his name great. And so this was the question. Remember, Psalms broken up into books. Second book, what was the question of that book? The point overall. David is old at this point. Maybe has already died. Here's the question. If I was... 80-something, if I was really old and my health had declined dramatically, but I was still coming up here to preach every day, but I had not trained anybody in my place, what would you be thinking? <laughs> What's going to happen when you die? This was the question in the, in, the, in the heart of God's people. God's promise was given to David in his line, but now David is dead. Is God's promise is still going to happen? And so this was the rejoicing heart of the sons of Korah who wrote a song to say, yes, there is a prince and he is fixing to wed. The line will go on. The king has a son. So we see the exalted king in the glory 
is the glorious bridegroom. I just want you to see there's three simple things here. We're going to just bounce around a little bit in this Psalms 45. I want you to see the glory. That's probably the most important thing that the sons of Korah want to acknowledge. The glory of the bridegroom. Look at verse 2. He is glorious in appearance. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is abhorred on your lips. He is blessed by God forever. Then look down at verse 8. Your robes are all fragrant. He looks like a king. He smells like a king. He lives in the places of the king. Look at verse 8. From ivory palaces, string instruments make you glad. The daughters are of kings are among the ladies of your honors. People from other nations that are just glad to be in your presence. It's glorious. Glorious apparel, royal palaces. Most likely here, if you look at the end of verse 9, at your right hand, the queen. Most likely, that's the queen mother. Don't, we don't have time to go there this morning. If you want to write down a text, 1 Kings 1, 11 to 31, what you'll see was Bathsheba was critical, fundamental, essential in the succession of Solomon as king. She sits in a place of honor and power, and she had power in that day in that culture. She's listed here as part of the glory. Verse 3, he has power. His power is glorious. He's called the mighty one in verse 3. You see it? Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In other words, he has authority. His glory has authority. The bridegroom has a real authority. And this can be confusing, this verse 6 and 7. And remember, verse 6 and 7 is what Hebrews is quoting that says this is pointing to the Messiah. We've got to understand it in its immediate context first. Notice what verse 6 says. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved rightness, verse 7, and hated wickedness. Therefore, listen, God, your God, has anointed you. So you, then you ask the question, you're sitting there going, who's he talking to? What does he mean? This is why it's really important to understand that the king is God's representative. All of the king's authority is a derived authority. This is important, brothers. It's important to understand this. The kingdom was God's. The throne was God's. The scepter was God. The people was God's. And he was put in place to rule God's people with God's word. And if he stepped out of that, God had the right to take back what he was. And Saul was the living proof of it. It's his where he said he's like God in the sense that everything that he has comes from God, is God's, and he is to rule with the authority of God, God's people for their good. And his rejoicing is, he is. And he will be. We're not going to be ruled by a tyrant. We're going to be ruled by a good king. He has been anointed by God for this work. Do you see that? Anointed by God. But listen, this is real authority. Real authority. Look at verse 3. He uses this authority. How? You see, the bride's not come up yet. <laughs> this is just talking about the groom. Gird your sword on your thigh, almighty one. Look at verse 4. 
in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth, meekness, and righteousness. Victory, verse 5, over your enemies. This is a celebration. Sometimes people teach that there was Moses and there was Joshua and God's people really didn't need a leader. And so they wanted Saul. And God's people need a leader. What the problem was with the people wanted a leader like the world and God gave them one like the world. They needed a leader that would lead with God's authority, with God's word. And by the way, that's what we need to pray for in our homes and in our country and in our town. He used his authority. How did he use it? Do you see in verse 4? For the cause of truth, meekness, and righteousness. Good news. This is good news not only for the country. It's good news for the lady who's fixing to be married to this guy. She could have married a Saul. And by the way, so could you. <laughs> Micah 6, 8. I think we're familiar with that passage. It says, He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? And if God's people are going to walk that way, God's leaders must model it for them. This is what they're celebrating. This king is glorious. His authority comes from God, and it's real. He's going to use it for the good. You see what he is? This is important. This is what's at the very heart of a, of a godly king. Of what was pointing to to our king, that he is a shepherd king. He uses his glory and his power for a purpose to protect and defend God's people. This is the overall context of the purpose of the king. That's why he's using his majesty in verse 4 for the cause of truth, meekness, and righteousness. God's people must be protected. Verse 6 his scepter, a symbol of his authority, is used for uprightness. You need only to study the kings that will follow to find out what happens when the king was raised up that did not do this. So let's, before we go to the second point, let's pull out our key. Turn with me back to Hebrews. Back to Hebrews. Hebrews 1, 8, and 9. Remember, that's our key. It says this verse speaks of Jesus. Let's back up a little bit. Now let's read the context of Hebrews 1. Then I want us to go to Revelation and see this king before we move to the bride. Hebrews 1, look at verse 1. Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the what? The heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much more superior to the angels, and as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the King. He is Psalms 45. He is the good king, the glorious king, the authoritative king, the shepherd king, the king for his people. It rules his people for the glory of God. Turn with me now to Revelation. 
When you flip to Revelation, you've got to practice a little bit of self-discipline. All we're looking for here is to see the king. Don't start trying to figure out who the lampstand, the lampstands and the, and the stars. and don't, don't go there in your mind. Or you're going to miss half the message before you come back. Let's look for Jesus. Look for Jesus. Revelation 1 verse 13. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were like white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in the furnace. And his voice was like a roar of many waters. Verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Verse 17, And when I saw him, I fell as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me. He said, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Flip over now to chapter 5 couple pages over in your Bible. Look at chapter 5. Look at verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one is found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seals. It's all about Jesus. Revelation 16. What will one day when he steps back into time and space, what will he bring to bear for the good of his people? Revelation 16, verse 5, sobering passage. It's true. I heard the voice of an angel in charge of the mighty waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. For you have brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and the prophets. And you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the groom. Jesus is the warrior. Jesus is the shepherd. He's the one who loves and serves and protects His people. And listen, that is good news for His bride. It's good news. The growth group grows here. I just want to just shake this a little bit as we go this morning. Brothers, who are you in this story? You've got a position in this, in this story of the groom and the bride. You've got a position in the story of Christ and His church. What kind of king are you being today? A David or Saul? Do you wield your influence and your authority for the glory of God and the good of your family? If you do, you will find people willing to follow you. The exalted king is the glorious bridegroom, but he has a bride. And here's what I want you to see. She is filled with joy. She is filled with joy. The bridegroom is glorious. Look at verse 13. She's glorious as well. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with the robes interwoven with gold and many colored robes. She is led to the king. 
her virgin companions following behind her. And listen, all of it. Verse 15, with joy and gladness they are led along. It's just a royal celebration. It's joy and gladness. And she is both prepared and then led to her king. Most likely, most people believe, at least in its first immediate context, is Solomon. Though this applies more than just to Solomon, as we've been talking about with Jesus and all the kings that come after him. But he was the one who took David's place. And by the way, just a little aside here. The Bible does not condone polygamy just because it is honest about it in Scripture. Matter of fact, what it is honest about is how it decimated the family every time it was used, every time Genesis wasn't applied. One man, one woman for life. Anytime that principle is ignored, catastrophic to the family and to the country follows. Mark it down because we're headed in the same direction. The Bible does not condone it. Need only to look at Solomon's life at the end to see that. But most likely this princess was a, a foreigner. She sometimes kings would marry surrounding countries' daughter. In other words, she wouldn't have much of a say about this. This they secured this marriage sometimes to secure peace. So she would have been prepared and brought. And so this is good news that her king that she's fixing to be married to is a good king. A sovereign king, but a good king. A king who loves his people. So this, this queen, this princess, would be having to leave her country and come to a new people. You remember the story of Esther? How she was prepared and brought to the king? It's the same context here. She is filled with gladness. Why? Because of her new identity. The bride has received a new identity. I am the queen of the king. And whether you are looking towards marriage or whether you're in marriage, brothers, you should see your wife as a queen and treat her as such. But that's what she is. She represents something even greater than herself. The bride, you see, the main point, the main admonition of him writing this poem out and saying it a tribute at the wedding is verse 10. He is addressing now the bride. Listen to what he says. Hear, O daughter, verse 10, and consider and incline your ear. Listen to what he tells her. Forget your people and your father's house. And your king will desire your beauty. He is your Lord. Bow to him. What is, he, what is he saying to, this, to the bride-to-be? Your response to the king should be absolute loyalty and reverence. Forget the old. That's what he's saying. Forget the old. You have a new loyalty. You have a new country. Do you remember Ruth? I love the story of Ruth. Ruth and Naomi. Do you remember? Naomi's, her husband takes her to a place because the country is famine-stricken. She gets there. Naomi's husband die. Ruth and the two son-in-laws, they die, left three women alone with nobody to support them. Catastrophic in that culture. So Naomi says, I'm going back home. And Ruth, y'all need to just go marry someone here in Moab. What did Ruth say? Do you remember what she said? I am going with you, and your people will be my people. Your God, my God. That's what he's telling the bride. 
Don't miss the king's desire in verse 11. You see, we have a whole book of the Bible called the Song of Solomon that tells us how Solomon felt about his bride. And listen, if all of Scripture points to Christ and his church, then I ask you, who's, who's Solomon and who's his bride? Solomon 4.7 says this, the king desire for his bride. Verse 7, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. This is how the king feels about his bride. And if you're in Christ, this is how Jesus feels about you this morning. It's good news, brothers and sisters. Can I ask you something? You know your biblical history. What happened to Solomon? He married many foreign women. And when he was old, his heart was turned. Why? Because the women never submitted their loyalty in reference to, to God and the king. And his loyalty was turned to their gods. How do we take up the key here now? Just want to go to a couple of texts, and we're going to get to the application here in a minute. Matthew 16. Matthew 16. Turn with me to Matthew 16. Now we're starting to talk about followers of Christ. See, if the bridegroom is Jesus, then who's the bride? The Bible tells us who it is, who, who the bride is. It is the very people of God. To Matthew 16. Listen to what Jesus tells the people of God. Matthew 16 verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of Father, then he will repay each person for according to what he has done. What he is requiring here of the bride is absolute loyalty. You leave it all. You deny everything else. You remember what he said? you got to hate your father and mother to follow me. What was his point? Nothing's more important than me, and nothing can be more important than me. If it is, you're not following me. Who is the bride? Revelation 19. Revelation 19. Look at verse 6. Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of great multitude, like a roar of many waters, and like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder, crying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and Exult and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It is granted her to clothe herself with fine, bright, fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these words, true words of God. And so, in your actual life, 
you display, you are displaying right now, if you have a spouse, if you are married, or if you were married, or if you hope to be married, you display the gospel in your marriage. You display the gospel in the way you treat each other. In wives, in the way you respect and honor, 1 Peter 3, 1-7. In the way you honor and respect your husband. In the way our husbands live in an understanding way with our wives, we teach this. We, we display to the world what our Jesus is like and what His church is like. So both David and Solomon pointed to something greater than themselves. A perfect bridegroom that loves his bride. This is enough to start the party right now. Let's just start the wedding. You know, praise the Lord. These feasts wasn't like some of the weddings around here when we got married. I had never have lived that down. We just had these little knickknacks and get on to the honeymoon. You know, no these these were these were feasts. So that's enough. Let's just let's just get the party started. But he's not done with his tribute. See, there's a hope. It goes beyond just the king. It goes beyond just the queen. The exalted king will be exalted forever. The nations are going to praise him. This is important. Look at verse 16. Is that train louder than it normally is? Seems louder, doesn't it? <laughs> Sometimes you just got to stop and acknowledge something so I can get it out of my head. It's going around in there and I can't get it out, you know. Look at verse 16. In the place of your fathers shall be your sons, and you will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This is how he ends his tribute. What were they looking forward to from this union? Children, <laughs> offspring, why? They just really liked to see children born. No, this was the king, you see. Do you remember the Davidic promise? 2 Samuel 7, verse 8 to 16. God gave David a promise. I will establish from you, from your line, a kingdom. That kingdom will be forever. And so the people hoped. David's gone. Will there be the king? Will the line continue? And so now with Solomon as the queen, the king, and now they will have children and we will have an heir. So historically, historically, this is an actual wedding that produced actual offspring. And as a result, the people said, God's promises are true. This is exactly what he promised. Revelation 22, verse 16 that be more clear what came from David Did, can Jesus' promises be trusted to the end of this thing that we're in still in right now Revelation 22 verse 16 says I Jesus have sent my angels to testify to you about these things for the churches I am the root and the descendant of David the bright and morning star he is the king. He has established his eternal kingdom through Christ, fulfilling what was promised to David. And it will be when he comes. Psalm 67, verse 4. 
I wish I had time to get into the Abrahamic covenant. I'm not going to go there. But through that covenant, there was a blessing to the nations promised. Jesus not only fulfills one covenant. Listen, Jesus fulfills them all. Psalm 67 verse 4 says, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Psalms 96 verse 10. We're moved out beyond just this small group of people now. Because that was all the promise all along, remember? Psalms 96 verse 10 says, Say among the nations... The Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. He shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. So this was the tribute to an actual wedding that actually happened. So God's king would lead God's people. So what? So what today? Are you rejoicing in your king? It's no more important question for us. Turn with me to Isaiah 61. And I want us to remember something together. Isaiah 61. Verses 1 to 3. But before we read it. Do you remember in the New Testament when this was read? Jesus started his ministry in Luke chapter 4. And he goes into his own hometown. They hand him the scroll of Isaiah and he opens it up. Stands before the people and here's what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. And He rolled up the scroll and handed it to attendant, and He said, today this has been fulfilled in your ears. Do you remember what the people did? They did not rejoice. They tried to kill him. What are you doing with that good news today? What are you doing with it? What am I doing with it? Do you know who your king is? Have we thought about the fact of who we have been made one with? I want you to see something in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Do you know what you've been given? Oh, there's so many scriptures we could turn to. I want you to remember who the king was. 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is Christ. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, 
by counting their trespasses against them, and listen, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with Him, then we appeal to you, do not receive the grace of God in vain. Who is God's ambassadors? Who is God's representatives on this earth? You are. We rule the kingdom of God. We live under His rule and reign. We govern our lives and our families by the very Word of God, for the glory of God, for the good of His people and the glory of His name. But we've got good news that's been rolled up. And we're not going to roll up the scroll today and stick it in our back pockets. We must proclaim it. Our King has come. And He has been exalted. And He will be exalted forever So the question this morning is, are you preparing to meet your king? The bride's preparing herself, you see. Turn with me to Ephesians 5. This is our growth group text. Ephesians 5. If this text doesn't come to bear in your life this week, either through growth group or studying this lesson on your own, you're missing part of the sermon. Ephesians 5, verse 23 says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Notice the accent. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless. And just in case we're we're not getting the imagery, in verse 32, He says, I speak a mystery, for this is talking about Christ and the church. Brothers and sisters, I simply want to point out this morning that just as David and his kingly line pointed forward to Christ and that tree, so our marriages point back to the cross and Calvary. When Christ gave himself for his bride, he commits himself to her to make her holy and pure and blameless. That's his passion. And if we are in God's will, brothers, it will be ours as well. This is how we model the gospel to the world. And if we are not, our message will fall on deaf ears. Our lives are a picture of the gospel. And one day, here's what we're looking for. Here's what we're preparing ourselves for. And listen, you know you're growing when I begin to care more about your preparation than I do my own. I know I'm maturing when I begin to worry about Mike and how he's growing with Christ. Not just me, you see. That's why our marriages are unhealthy today. We're not worrying about each other's growth. It's just what he's saying. The king worries about you. He commits himself to you. We commit ourselves to grow with Christ with each other. 
Brothers and sisters, I don't know how much of this royal goodness you could soak in this morning. You could, we could study it all again and never touch the same place. Here's what I want to tell you. The more you study God's Word, the more you begin to understand the storyline of the Bible, the, the people of the Bible, and the, and the image of the Bible, and the point of the Bible, the more you will fall in love with your Jesus. And the more you will fall in love with your spouse, or marriage in general, and listen, the more you will embrace your royal responsibility to be a messenger for Christ in this world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the good news, Lord. There's so much here. We could go back this whole text and just look at marriage, Lord. Thank you that your word cannot be exhausted. Your truth is new every day. And Oh God, we thank you that we don't have to wring our hands and worry about who our king is going to be tomorrow. Our king is on the throne and he reigns and he will reign forever. And yet, Lord, if you care about the funeral we're going to have to go to in a few minutes. Lord, you love us. May we display that in the way we love each other. May we display that in the way we live and love those that live in this broken world. Much to celebrate for, Lord. So, Lord, will you receive our worship now as we worship you? Let's stand and sing.